The reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and you can find it on page 1173 of the Church Bibles. Thanksgiving and Prayer. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. I have, a, I have a question for you. Have you ever wondered whether God is really at work in your life? Maybe you wrestle with that from time to time. We all do. Maybe you're thinking, I am a Christian. I've put my faith in Christ, but I'm struggling. It's hard. I feel defeated. It always feels like two steps forward, one step back. There's no sense of victory. Now, maybe you briefly mentioned it to a friend at the Easter service, but there wasn't really time to talk, so a few days later, you sent him a text message, which I have here. Hey, been thinking about our brief chat. That black cloud is still there. Still feels like life rubbish has the upper hand. Why aren't you a miracle worker, you fool, smiley face? Even better, if God is so all-powerful, why doesn't he just, all caps, fix me, exclamation mark. Any thoughts? Question mark, question mark, question mark, puzzled, smiley face man. Thanks, exclamation mark. P.S. Sorry to see the box whipped England again, LOL. Um, your phone dings, and there's a reply, and it says, check your post tomorrow. A little bit abrupt. Maybe the rugby comment was a bit too much. And the next morning an envelope drops through the door and you open it and in the envelope you find two things. The first is a card which says do this, colon, one, read the enclosed, two, read again, three, read a third time, four, repeat one to three, Five, call me. Weird. 
The second item in the envelope is a highlighted and underlined document with notes on it. You start reading and you realize that it's a marked up copy of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's hardly the miracle cure I was hoping for, might be your first thought, which is understandable. But your friend has actually done you a huge favor because you need to hear what the Ephesians needed to hear. You see, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul knew that they needed encouragement, even though he was the one who was under house arrest in Rome. So he sat there, he's chained to a uniformed Roman guard, and he's been thinking and praying about the church and the people in Ephesus, people whom he loves. He's been through thick and thin with them on a number of times before. He's visited them twice before, and you can read about that in Acts 18, 19, and 20. He knows them well. So he picks up his pen and his parchment, and he starts writing this letter to the Ephesians. It's a magnificent letter. It's a letter that Calvin would later call his favorite epistle. And in the letter, Paul tells them, and he tells us, two things. Firstly, he tells us what it means to be in Christ, to be chosen by God the Father before time began, to be redeemed through God the Son, and to be held secure by God the Holy Spirit. So he tells us what it means to be in Christ. Secondly, he tells us what it means to live in Christ, practically. He tells us what it means for the lives that we live as individuals, as a church, with our families, and in the workplace. He tells us what it means to live in Christ. And that's Paul's letter that he writes to the Ephesians. And it applies as much to us now as it did to them then. So the first three chapters are about your status. It's about being in Christ. The next three chapters are about your walk. They're about living in Christ. Paul then has a number of important themes which run through the whole letter, like golden threads. So, for example, there's the Trinity, which occurs a number of times. There's the Church, Christians through the ages, which occur a number of times. There's peace, the peace of God. It's another thread that runs through it a number of times. And the thread that we're going to grab and pull today and have a look at is power, the power of God. More specifically, the resurrection power of God in your life. We're in a, rain, a series of sermons on the resurrection going through this season. So that's what we're going to look at, the resurrection power of God in your life in this letter. And he says three things about that power. He says that you are secured by God's power in chapter 1. He says that you are strengthened by God's power in chapter 3. And he says you are supplied by God's power in chapter 6. Secured, strengthened, and supplied. So that's what we'll look at, each of those in turn. But before we jump in, let's ask God to help us, and let's have a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for this letter that you've sent us. We thank you that you inspired Paul to write it. We thank you that you've preserved it for us to this day. We ask, Lord, that you will help us to see that by your power you meet every need that we have in our lives as your children. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So firstly, you're secured by God's power. This is Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23, which Mary read to us earlier. 
Now, before we look at the passage, there's a few things that you need to be aware of, that you need to know. Firstly, power is a very rich term in the Bible. And it's a bit tricky to translate. So translators tend to use words like power and might and strength and so on. The main sense of it, the sense that it conveys, is that only God has true, independent power. Only God has complete authority and control without being dependent on anyone or anything else. Only God has that kind of power. Only God is omnipotent, all-powerful. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that there was human power all around the Ephesians. So Ephesus was one of the greatest cities in the Roman Empire. They had the temple of Artemis, which loomed large in the city. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There were political statues, there were engravings, there were inscriptions on street corners and in the marketplace. And much of it proclaimed the fact that the gods had given Rome the eternal right to rule the universe by their power. And we have our equivalents, don't we? We have governments, we have commercial entities, we have political movements, and we have that most voracious animal of all, social media. We have our equivalents. Now they were surrounded by claims to power, and so we also are surrounded by claims to power. And so just like them, we also need to see, and we also need to be encouraged by the truth, and by what's actually going on behind the scenes. And that's what Paul wants to write to them about. But Paul knows that encouragement isn't just an intellectual head problem. It's a heart problem. So he knows that they need their hearts to be opened by God to see his revelation, to see his wisdom, to see his power with more clarity and with more certainty, because that is what will really encourage them. An enlightened heart. So in verses 15 and 16, he prays, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So he wants, obviously wants to encourage them. You can hear from the tone in the prayer. He wants them to know, I haven't stopped praying for you. And he goes on in verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So even though as believers they already have God the Holy Spirit within them, Paul specifically asks God to send the Holy Spirit to give them greater wisdom and understanding. In verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So Paul asks God to send the Holy Spirit to give them greater wisdom and understanding and to open the eyes of their hearts. To see what? He carries on. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He asks God to send the Holy Spirit to give them greater wisdom, to open the eyes of their hearts, so that they can see and know that their hope is firm. So they can be certain that they will be part of Christ's glorious inheritance, which he will receive at the last day. He's talking about the universal family of true believers, what he calls the bride of Christ elsewhere. He wants them to be sure, to be certain, that they are part of that inheritance, that they will be standing there. Verse 19, 
and his incomparably great power, the power he uses for us who believe. So we've skimmed over the top, but I hope you're getting the gist of it. Paul is basically saying, Father, open the eyes of their hearts so they can be sure that they will be part of Christ's glorious inheritance so that they can know your power which you use for them. So how and where does God use this power? Ah, says Paul, let me tell you, and he carries on. On the second half of verse 19, that power is like the working of his mighty strength. So as I said before, Paul is stretching for words to convey something which is really beyond description. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So using his power, God has raised Christ from the dead. He's placed him at his right hand, surpassing any pathetic worldly power as the head over all creation. And all of that for his body, for the church, for you. Who will be part of that glorious inheritance when he returns as judge and as king. The power which God used when he raised Christ from the dead, when he seated him at his right hand with supreme authority, is the power he uses to keep you secure for that day. For the day when your hope will be realized, when you will be part of that glorious inheritance. If your faith is in Christ, you are secure in Christ for that day and beyond. You're secure because God's power, God's incomparably great resurrection power, which nothing can even remotely threaten, much less dislodge, his power will keep you there for that day. Good news. Yes? Isn't that a relief? Isn't it a relief to know that you're secure in him if that's where your trust is? But then, because Paul knows our hearts, because he knows there's a voice in us that immediately wants to say, I'm so relieved that I get all this because I'm such a good Christian, he says immediately in chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were spiritually dead. How can you possibly think that you're secure because of something you did? Or because of how good you were? That has nothing to do with it. He wants to remove any thought you may have that your security in Christ is because of something you did. It's because of what God did. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a gift. You don't get that status by being good. It would be insane to think that you can earn it by your heritage, or by being good, or by your family connections, or by anything by being really nice people. That's not Christianity, that's works religion. And it will disappoint you. Matt Fuller is the senior minister at Christchurch Mayfair in London. I can't believe I left my water here in the first service and in this one. 
Um, he's the senior minister at Christchurch Mayfair in London, and he puts it very well. He says, if our trust is in Christ, then our status, being secure in Christ, is because of what God did by his power. In our status before God, we are perfect. We are righteous. It is based on what Christ has done, not on what we've done. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, our walk with God is variable. But equally, our status is that we're perfect, we're justified, we're righteous because of what Christ has done. And we're kept there, in that position, by the power of God. So that's the first thing we see when we look at the theme of power in Ephesians. We are secured by God's power. Now Paul carries on with what it means to be in Christ in the rest of the chapter, and he gets to chapter 3 eventually, and then he remembers to get back to his prayer, where we will pick him up. So he too had wandering thoughts. Uh, chapter 3, verse 14. Now here we'll see that Paul goes on to pray that you'll be strengthened by God's power. Having been made secure, you will be strengthened. Chapter 3, verse 14, this is what he says. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This man's not shy about asking God to work in your life. Actually, he's not asking, he's begging. So the usual Jewish posture for prayer was to stand. But if you knelt like Ezra did in the Old Testament when he was begging God for forgiveness for what Israel had done, or if you fell face down like Christ did in the Garden of Gethsemane, then it was a far more earnest and a far more desperate prayer than usual. And so Paul says in verse 14, for this reason I kneel, I beg God. And then he carries on after verse 14 and he lays out these three huge spiritual mountain ranges, each higher than the next one, each more mysterious, each more infinite, each needing a lifetime to explore and understand. And he wants God to take them and us into all three. So he prays and he pleads with God, Father, use your power to work in us to take us up those ranges one by one. So what we'll do is we'll skim over the three of them, just like those drone flights you keep seeing on Facebook. Right? Verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the first range, Christ dwelling in our hearts. So he's saying, Father, use your power to strengthen their hearts, strengthen their inner beings by the Holy Spirit, so that Christ doesn't just visit their hearts, but so that Christ doesn't just lodge in their hearts, so that Christ dwells, so he abides, so that he remains, so that their faith in him is driven deeply, permanently into their hearts, into the core of their being. And that's the first range, Christ dwelling in our hearts. And he carries on to the next one, partway through verse 17. And I pray that you, 
being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So that's the second range. Knowing the unknowable, knowing infinite love. He's saying, Father, given that Christ dwells in their hearts by faith, use your power to enable them all together to know more of your infinite, unknowable love. So that's the second range, knowing infinite love. And then he carries on to the final one, partway through verse 18. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So that's the third range. Father, as you use your power to embed Christ into the core of their hearts, and as you use your power to show them the vastness of Christ's infinite love, fill them with your fullness through your Spirit. Fill them with you, is what he's saying. And fill them so that all sin and evil will be driven out and they will find their joy and their completeness and their fulfillment in you. Ray Auckland puts it like this. Paul is praying that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is, that we will be so satisfied in all that God is for us in Christ that sin loses its power, that the things of this world lose their charm, and that we find in God our final happiness. Then we are free at heart to live all out for him. So that's the ultimate range filled with the fullness of God. That's what Paul prays for. And that's what I think we might need to summarize. So Paul prays, Father, I beg you, I beg you, strengthen them, strengthen them through your Holy Spirit and do three things. One, place Christ deep within their hearts. Two, help them to know Christ's infinite love. And three, fill them with yourself, driving out all sin. That, that's what he prays for. And then his prayer ends with something you're very familiar with. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Now think about what he's just asked for. And he's saying to God who can do far more than that and far more than we can possibly even ask or imagine. And he's tried asking. According to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Basically, glory to God, because he can do this and so much more that we cannot even imagine. He can answer this prayer. Only he can answer this prayer. I was thinking about this a few nights ago, and two things struck me. <clears throat> the one is obviously just the impossibility of what he's trying to encompass in his prayer, the magnificent and the gratitude of it. But the other thing that struck me was, I don't pray like this. Falls on his knees. He's begging God to powerfully reach down, open the eyes of their hearts, assure them that they are secure in Christ's glorious inheritance, empower them so they see the infinite love of the Savior, fill them with his fullness. I don't pray like this. Maybe you feel the same way. It is eloquent, and it's deep and huge and majestic and impossible, but that's not the point. It could equally be very simple. Lord, please place Christ deep within their hearts, help them to know Christ's infinite love, fill them with yourself and drive out all sin. Simple. The point is, there's no pious platitudes. 
There's no bless so-and-so and be with so-and-so. And I say that as a critique to me as much as to anyone. He's so immersed in the scriptures, he's so immersed in the gospel, that even when he prays for the believers, he just bleeds truth. Ray Auckland carries on to say this. He says, this early Christian prayer paints the picture of a real, original, non-optional Christianity. We see theologically responsible, non-weird Christianity, calling us out of our natural smallness up into the felt presence of Christ. A powerful sharing of his mighty love together and such confidence in God that nothing can stop us. And this is just one simple example of the massive reality we call the gospel. I don't know how many people we have at St. Mary's who can pray like that. I'm sure we have some, but I do know we could always do with one more. We need to move on. We saw in chapter 1 that we're secured by God's power. We saw in chapter 3 that we're strengthened by God's power. And now let's briefly look at how we are supplied by God's power. Chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, <clears throat> be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. And he then goes on to describe what that armor is. Now when Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the obvious implication is that they will certainly try. They will fail, but they will try. So at the end of his letter, when Paul is talking about living in Christ, he brings us down to earth with something of a bump, and he says, don't forget, you're in a war. You have a fight on your hands. Now there's a few, just a few really important points to note here. Firstly, it's a supernatural struggle. Now just like the frog in the kettle that eventually gets boiled alive without realizing it, we can easily get used to the prevailing worldview around us that there's nothing supernatural out there. Or even sometimes as we say, yes, there is, it's easy to just sit there and live almost as a functional materialist, being aware that you're the frog in the kettle but not doing anything about it. Now this passage is a really good antidote. We're in a supernatural struggle, not against flesh and blood, but a struggle in which evil in the world and even in the church around us has a face. It has an active and a living personality behind it. C.S. Lewis puts it very well when he says this, and you heard this before not that long ago. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. 
They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and would hail a materialist or a sorcerer with the same delight. But their first aim, listen to this, their first aim is to give you an anesthetic, to be the frog in the kettle, to put you off your guard. Only if that fails do you become aware of them. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Evil is personal, and we need a personal God to fight it. So that's the first thing to very briefly notice. Secondly, notice also that it's an individual and it's a corporate struggle. Now we tend to look at this description of the armor in Ephesians 6, and we think of it being addressed to us individually because of the armor-soldier metaphor. But he's speaking to them as a church, as the body of Christ. So the call to take up the armor of God isn't just to you as an individual, it's also to you as the local body. It's not just for you to fight as an individual for your personal good, it's also for you to fight as part of the church, as part of the body of Christ in the place that he has placed you. You're not alone. You're part of a family. You need us to have your back, as it were, and we need you to do the same. So it's a supernatural fight. It's a fight we fight together, both very brief. But finally, the important point for us this morning is that we cannot do it on our own. We need God's strength and power. So verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So Paul chained to his Roman God, is using him as a metaphor, his uniform. And he paints a picture of the fight we're in, using items from this man's uniform to represent truth, to represent righteousness, to represent peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Those are the weapons that are at hand. I want to meet that man one day, just to see or hear what he discussed with Paul. I think it would be interesting over dinner. Those are the weapons which, call, which God gives us. But they're weapons that we need the grace and the power of God to use. It's his power which provides us with the weapons. It's his strength in us, Paul tells us, which enables us to use them and to be effective in our fight for the faith, effective in our broken world, and effective in our church. And so Paul says because you need the grace and the power of God to use these, you need to pray. You need to pray. You need to appeal to God to empower you. You need to ask God to keep you alert, and you need to ask God to keep you ready to fight. And so verse 18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So, Hopefully those would be three of the passages that your friend will have highlighted for you in the letter. In chapter 1, God has secured you by his power. In chapter 3, God has strengthened you by his power. And in chapter 6, God has supplied you by his power for the good fight. And hopefully it will have the same effect on you that Paul was hoping for when he sent the letter. So look at verse 21. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage you.
Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. Even though our prayers are weak and they are feeble, thank you that you still hear them. You still heed them. But we do ask of you the same thing that Paul asked for the Ephesians. Place Christ deep within our hearts. Help us to know Christ's infinite love and fill us with yourself, driving out all sin. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that through your power you keep us secure, you strengthen us, and you supply us with everything we need. And we ask that you will help us to be encouraged and to be emboldened, to be effective in our fight for the faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.